Good morning. Welcome to First Universalist Unitarian Church. My name is Karen, and I, Karen Monarski, and I've been a member of this congregation since I believe it was 2016. Um, and I serve this congregation as a member of the choir. Um, and, <laughs> um, and on the church board. Um, I want to extend a special welcome to everyone joining us here and online this morning. Since 1870, UUASA has served as a vital voice for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people just as you are, regardless of age, sexual orientation, ethnicity, or economic situation. Wherever you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. We are currently worshiping both in person and online. So be sure to subscribe to the church's newsletter and follow us on Facebook or Instagram for updates. And with that, let us gather our hearts and minds for worship. Please join me in reciting the church's chalice lighting. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot the announcements. <laughs> After today's service, please join us upstairs in the dining hall for our October potluck. Um, and mark your calendars. We'll be having a family movie night here at UUWASA on at 7 p.m. on Friday, October 14th. Join us for a spooky, but not too scary movie and Halloween activities. RSVs are appreciated, but not required. Write to jessica at uuwasa.org. So, now let's gather our hearts and minds for worship. Please join me in reciting the church's chalice lighting. You will find the words printed in the order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. I invite you to rise as you're willing and able for our opening hymn number 1008 in the Teal Hymn Book, When Our Heart is in a Holy Place.
If you would, please remain standing and join me in our affirmation. Words are in your order of worship. Love is the doctrine of this church. The quest of truth is its sacrament, and service is its prayer. To dwell together in peace, to seek knowledge and freedom, to serve human need, to the end that all souls shall grow into harmony with the divine. Thus do we covenant with each other. Nor doxology. If you visit my office, you'll see on my windowsill a pile of treasures. Some were gifts, some were things I think are fun or nostalgic, and some serve as a reminder of the type of person I'd like to be when I grow up. This guy is one from that latter category, and it's probably a little hard to see from up here, but this is a Funko Pop of Mr. Rogers. He is wearing his uh, famous cardigan and sneakers and holding trolley. As a child, I loved Mr. Rogers and his neighborhood of make-believe who liked me just the way I was. As an adult, I loved how he was able to answer complex questions in a very relatable and accessible way. For instance, one of my favorite Fred Rogers quotes is, love isn't a state of perfect caring. Love is an active noun like struggle. To love someone is to strive to accept that person exactly as they are, right here and now. And Mr. Rogers would sing, I like you as you are, without a doubt or question, or even a suggestion, because I like you as you are. Now, as much as I love the ease of which Mr. Rogers translated deep theologian language to that of children, I don't think it made it any easier to live out. Because the other thing you don't know about me is I will spend the rest of my day thinking about how I could have told this time for ages better, every slip, every stumble, every mistake I made. And Brian's chuckling, but I'm going to have notes for you too. <laughs> I joke, of course, but we do live in a culture that upholds perfection, and we often hold ourselves and others around us to too high of a standard, very much not loving each other just as we are. So this morning, I want to invite you to join me in imagining a different way with a Souls Matters activity that was shared a couple years ago. It was written to look at expectations we set for ourselves, but I also encourage you to think about someone who hasn't lived up to your expectations. First, I'm gonna invite you to move into a comfortable position. Put your hands on your lap or on your knees. Find your breath moving in your body by taking one breath in through your nose and then slowly breathing it out through your mouth. Imagine a time when you were hard on yourself for not living up to some expectation you had. Did you berate yourself? Visualize the moment. Now imagine that same thing happened to a cherished friend. 
what would you say to them? Imagine yourself talking to them. Imagine comforting them. Now put your own self in that place of a cherished friend. Comfort yourself. Cherish yourself. Cherish your failures and your mistakes. Cherish your attempts. Cherish your very soul as it shines with its own light to offer the world. Cherish your hands. Take one hand and place it in the other. Hold it so it knows it's cared for just the way it is. Now reverse your hands and do the same with the other. Cup your face and show your care. Take some deep breaths and in and out and comfort your doubts and your worries. Rest in stillness. Imagine a healing, comforting light that fills your soul, your body, and your mind with warmth and healing. Hold that image of comforting yourself just like you would comfort a cherished friend. Next time you don't meet your expectations, remember what Mr. Rogers says applies to everyone, even ourselves. I like you as you are, no doubt, without a doubt or a question, or even a suggestion, because I like you as you are. And that was our time for allegiance today. Please join me in blessing our children and youth off to their RE groups with May Peace Surround You. The words are printed in your order of worship. The mission and ministry of UUASA is made possible by the generous support of its friends and members. Rather than pass a plate at this time, we've placed an offering basket in the back of the sanctuary for you to drop a gift in. You can also stop by our website, uuwasa.org, to make a one-time or recurring gift with your credit or debit card. Thank you for your support.
I'd like to invite all of you to join me in a spirit of prayer and a spirit of meditation. Start by putting your feet flat and firm on the ground. If you pray or meditate with your eyes closed, go ahead and close them. Take a deep breath down into your stomach and slowly exhale. Take notice of your beating heart, the warmth of the person sitting next to you. Let us pray. O Spirit of life, in desperate times, all of us have cried, increase our faith, as though simply by asking, answers will come down like lightning, bearing truth and bringing harmony to the world. But we in our world hunger for good news. We want the broken hole, the sick well, we want the prisoners freed and the refugees to find home and community. We want to be part of your loving and creating body, part of your good news for the world. And though we want the easy answer, we understand that truth comes slowly, rising like the sun, slowly chasing the dark of doubt away. Because we care, we carry with us burdens of the needs of others. And we hold tenderly this morning the people afflicted by the hurricane in Florida and along the Atlantic coast. We hold tenderly the people of Iran and people caught up in and fleeing the conflict in Ukraine and those who are in our midst but suffer in secret. O sunrise of new beginnings, hear us as we lift our prayers for those who need healing and loving presence in their lives. Life spirit be present with us as we listen deeply for guidance. Now let us call to mind all the joys and sorrows in our lives, and let us meditate on them in silence together now. Amen. Let us sing seated our prayer hymn number 123, Spirit of Life.
Reading this morning comes from the Gospel according to Luke, beginning in the 17th chapter at the 5th verse. I know all of you spent all week reading the Gospel of Luke, but I'll remind you what was happening before this reading. What was happening is Jesus was traveling through his itinerant ministry and he was performing countless miracles. And so they've stopped along the way, they've seen all these miracles, and they turn to their teacher and the apostles say to the Lord, they say, even though you've shown us all these miracles, increase our faith. And so Jesus replies, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now, sit down and eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, then you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. There and ends our reading.
So last weekend, I traveled to Washington, D.C. for a friend's wedding. And it was a fabulous wedding in every sense of the word. It was a touching ceremony, absolutely delicious food, delightful fellowship, music, and a platform for dancing under the stars, which my wife and I enjoyed very late into the night. The ceremony had this wonderful personal touch thanks to the officiant, who was the bride's very best friend since they were just little girls. But the star of the show was the vows, which the bride and the groom wrote themselves. I promise to put you first, they said to one another. I promise to kiss you and tell you I love you every morning and every night, they added. There wasn't a dry eye in the house. I was all misty. Everyone was misty. And at the end, everyone stood up, and we cheered the newlyweds, and then we quickly lined up at the bar. <laughs> so I love weddings. You all probably love weddings. We've all been to a wedding, or maybe you've seen one on TV, which should cover just about anyone. And we all know the truth about wedding vows. They're total rubbish. They're meaningless. So several years ago in The New Yorker, for those of you who like Roz Cast's cartoons, she captured this reality perfectly in a cartoon. So in the cartoon, imagine it's this sanctuary inside of a church, and there's this clergyman standing in front of, in, in front of a woman and a man, and the clergyman asks the newlyweds this. He says, do you promise to put up with each other's bull stuff for as long as you can stand it? That's the question. So when I Googled the percentage of marriages in preparation for the sermon, I said I should Google the, the number of marriages that end in divorce in America. The first result Google gave me back was this. Burgraff, Tash, and Levy, Scottsdale, Arizona's top divorce lawyers. Their tagline, by the way, is helping you move forward, as if marriage was a step backward. I guess that's the assumption you have to make. So need I say more about marriage in America? So I tend to think of wedding vows as something like the ragtag kids in the Netflix show Stranger Things. Have any of you ever seen the show Stranger Things? I'll describe it if you haven't. There are these kids who fight monsters who escape this terrifying upside-down world. And the kids are witty and lovable and nerdy, and the show's era indulges my 90s, 80s nostalgia. But the thing about these kids is what? They have a secret weapon a little girl named Eleven with superpowers. And so marriage vows, whether they're traditional or unique, are written like we have Eleven-like superpowers to somehow control our every want and desire, which is pure fantasy. So Thomas Cranmer, the leader of the English Reformation and the former Archbishop of Canterbury, he once said this. He said, quote, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. So this is exactly what our reading from Luke was getting at this morning. So in the story, the apostles, they witness miracles. They see Jesus care for the sick. They see him feed the hungry. They see him forgive the undeserving, turn the other cheek, show bravery and adversity. But even after all that, after months and months of following this guy around, seeing him do the right thing, it's still not enough. And so what do they say? They say, we need more. We need you to do more, and we need you to increase our faith. 
They demand it. So people in 2022, people like us, we don't ever say things like increase our faith. But the message of this still applies. So the point of the exchange reminds us that often all of us know what's right, we know what's expected of us, and yet, in the end, we do what we know is wrong. We take the easy way out, we push our responsibilities onto others, we say we're right even when we know we're wrong. But don't get me wrong about my friend's marriage, I think he found a terrific partner to make a marriage with. And I truly believe that they made their promises in good faith. But when it comes to making promises, we are all apostles screaming, increase our faith. Show me you deserve my love. Prove to me you're still worth it. Ignore all of my thoughts as I constantly call all of your faults out. So here's a bit of science on making promises from a doctor by the name of Melissa Ritter who's a psychoanalyst and psychology professor in New York City. This is what she says about making promises, quote, only a fraction of our thoughts and feelings are in our awareness at any moment. And we often focus exclusively on those feelings that are most favorable and least threatening to our sense of well-being. Let me put that in other words. While we are making promises to be more nicer, or to be more committed, we are seldom aware that deep down in our gut are parallel feelings of doubt and fear and anger that pop up. So Carl Jung was fond of saying that people will do anything no matter how absurd in order to avoid facing their own souls. A better version of this comes from the writer Anne Lamott, who said this in a recent interview in Salon. I'm going to quote her because it's so good. Anne Lamott says, everyone is screwed up, broken, clingy, and scared, even the people who seem to have it more or less together. They are much more like you than you would believe. So try not to compare your insides to their outsides. But we don't like to hear that we're limited people. Those of us with modern ears here talk about human limitation as if it's something defeating, even shameful. But I sort of wonder that isn't it more defeating and shame-inducing to constantly hear that we are totally capable of transcending all limitations, but it's just that we haven't been able to pull it off yet, as if perfection is ever an option on the table. But this is the messaging we get. Read this book and then you will finally have the right perspective. Eat a better diet so you won't die too early and have all of your friends whisper if you smoked or drank or finally renewed your membership at the Y after COVID stopped being a valid excuse to skip exercising. So as the sociologists Carl Saderstrom and Andrew Spicer observe in their wonderful book, Desperately Seeking Self-Improvement, this is what they say. We are constantly under pressure to show that we know how to lead the perfect life. So to be clear, I am not suggesting that we should turn into some version of the nihilists in the movie Big Lebowski, who famously believe in nothing. Getting counseling to be a better spouse or parent, it works. Going to groups that help with addiction, calling mentors, adhering to a healthier diet, all of these things are very worthwhile. But the message that you can improve is a slippery slope 
a way from you must improve to you can't stop improving. I saw an example of this in the newspaper that said to me that today's college campuses are filled with students who believe in improvement at all costs. And so what the report shows is that students that believe that grades less than an A minus is akin to failure. A minus, akin to failure. And where do you think they got this idea from? They certainly got it from probably their parents, or maybe educators or counselors at school who pushed them to believe that people who try hard enough, play sports enough, volunteer enough, and get into college good enough will one day get a job and become enough to earn acclaim, affection, and love. We all know intuitively that this messaging is damaging, but it turns out that we just can't find the off switch. And so the CDC actually issued a report just a little bit earlier that shows that 44% of American high school students say they feel, quote, persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness. Every four in 10 child you walk by in a high school feels persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness. So Kate Julian, who writes for The Atlantic, she covered this report of the CDCs, and she said that a major cause of this is anxious parents. So in seeking to insulate their kids from risk and danger, what these parents are doing unintentionally is they are transferring their anxiety onto their kids. And so the question that I came up with after I read this was, how can someone ever truly know love and acceptance when you're trained to believe that weakness and ignorance is solvable? Why would you ever want to share your life with someone when you're told that you already have everything you've got? When love and status are reserved only for those who are becoming more efficient and productive, what happens is they remain just out of reach for everyone. And when we're constantly focused on ourselves rather than on our neighbors, life ends up getting twisted from hopeful ambition into a constant buildup of not enoughness. The irony of believing that everyone has what it takes to be enough to improve themselves to completion is that it topples love for your neighbor. If you assume that people are basically level-headed and even-handed, this will endlessly anger you when they inevitably make odd and destructive decisions. This isn't to say that we shouldn't set high standards for ourselves and for others. I think we should. But we should also accept that deep down, we're just human. Lee Ross, who taught at Stanford for a long time, he died just last year. He won all these awards, and he coined this phrase. The phrase is this fundamental attribution error. So here's the gist of what that long phrase means. When we're explaining someone else's behavior, what we tend to do is we tend to overemphasize that person's character, and we place far too little emphasis on the circumstances that person finds themselves in. You get that? I'm going to read it again. We overemphasize a person's character, and we place far too little emphasis on the circumstances that person finds themselves. So if we see someone doing well at something, we assume that it's because they're a talented, an upstanding person and not because they were set up for success by background and circumstance. 
But the thing about the attribution sword is, is that it cuts two ways. Because whenever we see someone fail, we tend to see the failure as their fault, even if they were living in impossible circumstances. So here's a couple examples of doing this. So Johnny made partner at the accounting firm by the age of 25. Therefore, Johnny is the true MVP. But what we don't know is that Johnny's family paid his way through school so that he could focus on his studies rather than paying bills. And by the way, Johnny's dad golfs with the owner. Here's another example. Jane got lung cancer because she smoked. But what we don't know is Jane's addiction started when she felt relief from her dad's constant emotional abuse with each inhale of a cigarette she stole from her mom's purse. This kind of uncurious thinking that leads to us making judgments about people, what it does is it makes distinctions rather than draw connections. And so St. Augustine, thousands and thousands of years before someone came up with the fundamental attribution error, he saw this in us. And so what Augustine believed is that deep down within all of us, every one of us longs for a deep desire for connection, but that it ends up getting corrupted by sin. And Augustine defines sin like this. Sin is an absence of love. And so 2,000 years after Augustine's observation, the author Zadie Smith, she saw something familiar, and she put it this way. Quote, I think the hardest thing for anyone is accepting that other people are as real as you are. That's it. Not using them as tools, not using them as exemplars of things to make yourself feel better or things to get over or under. Just accepting that they are absolutely as real as you are and have all the same expectations and demands. And it's so difficult that basically the only person who ever did it was Christ. The rest of us are very, very far behind." End quote. When I read Zadie Smith's words, I arrive at this conclusion. We can dislike the word sin all we want, but we cannot escape its reality. And so I stumbled just the other day on a wonderful expression of our conflicted desire for connection when I watched the School of Life's tutorial video on how to get married. Now, I hadn't heard of the School of Life until just a couple of weeks ago when a congregant stopped by and she gifted me with a meditation aid of theirs. Are any of you familiar with the School of Life? Well, you're welcome. That's all I got to say about that. The School of Life is a secular education company founded by the French philosopher, philosopher Alain de Poton. And he founded an educational company devoted to using psychology, philosophy, therapy, art, and culture as tools to bring about growth, calm, and self-understanding from everything ranging from marriage to grief to workplace confidence. And so the marriage video, put yourself in this mind, the marriage video starts with two people reading from a personalized book of imperfections with the cup which the couple created in the months before marriage by jotting down their mistakes that they made in past relationships and listing all of their unfortunate tendencies. And so as you're watching the video, one in the couple looks at the person they're about to get married to and says, for example, I'm really not good at communicating my feelings maturely. 
And the other one turns to their partner and says, I, I'm going to tend to assume that if you're upset, it is always going to have something to do about me. And this goes on and on back and forth. And then a voiceover comes over and tells us, self-righteousness, self-righteousness is, after all, the great enemy of love. So in other words, if you're focused on your own rightness, the other person in the relationship will naturally always appear wrong. You will wonder, why can't this person change to be more like me rather than just accept them for who they are? And so, after the couple go back and forth talking about all their faults and imperfections, they then turn to one another and they say in unison these words, neither of us is fully sane or healthy, but we are committed to treating each other as broken people with enormous kindness and imagination. And the real kicker is the last line, when we can manage it. And next, the whole gathered congregation chimes in with a recitation of their own as one, and the congregation issues to this newlywed couple the following affirmation, quote, Dear friends, we are all broken people. We have all been idiots, and we will be idiots again. We are all difficult to live with. We sulk and we get angry, blame others for our own mistakes. My goodness, we have strange obsessions and fail to compromise. But we are here to make you feel less lonely with your failings. We will never know all the details, but we understand. I now pronounce you husband and wife. That's how it goes. So what this ceremony gets is it gets that we constantly measure ourselves and others by the standards of our best days, which are the rarest days. And that often we feel let down by others and our own not-enoughness. And so a friend of mine who has been married for 60 years, if you don't believe in miracles, 60 years of marriage. So he told me that about 20 years ago, he started this new morning ritual. And so this is what my friend says. He says that every morning he wakes up and he rolls over to his lovely wife and he whispers into her ear. He says, I'm very sorry. Thank you. And I forgive you. Mind you, nothing has happened in the day yet. <laughs> but here's why he does this. Here's what he means. He says, I'm sorry for being annoying later at breakfast. I am sorry for cutting you off mid-sentence. I am sorry for last night hiding the candy bar you were hiding from me in the back of the refrigerator. Thank you for saying that you find my naked, aging body attractive. Thank you for loving me in spite of my many faults, and I forgive you for not accepting at times that I am just as real as you. So what causes people to stand and cheer at weddings, it isn't false pretense, because everyone on some level knows that all of us flunk the vows. But true love, like true forgiveness, comes to those who don't always deserve it. People who try but fail to be enough, but find acceptance in this. And this love and this forgiveness is God's gift. It's a gift we get and give by grace, by friendship, by marriage, by being someone's child, 
by strangers, by people we've wronged, and sometimes by enemies. Because we are all broken. We have all been idiots, and we will be idiots again. We are all difficult to live with. We sulk, and we get angry, blame others for our own mistakes, have strange obsessions, and fail to compromise. But the church, the church is here to make you less lonely in your failings. The minister and the members will never know all the details, but we understand. Amen. I invite you now to join, as you're willing and able to join in our closing hymn, number 311, Let It Be a Dance. rise.
If you came here with someone this morning, I invite you to reach out and take their hand. May the truth that sets us free and the hope that never dies and the love that casts out fear lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away. Please have a seat, relax, and enjoy the postlude. I'll see you in a moment. When you get the hang of this, I'd love it if you guys started to sing along. The words are in the program. They learned this by ear. 